What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, This is episode um, 120-something of the podcast. Uh, Not entirely sure anymore where we are in the the numbers, but uh, but anyway, not a new podcast anymore. Uh, But basically what we do here for the people who haven't tuned in before, their first time listening, uh, basically I uh, invite on an author to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published on uh, something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then, you know, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go ahead and uh, purchase the book and give it a read yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today, uh, another... Re- Return guest, uh, a uh, actually a first time, uh, third timer for the podcast, is Dr. H. W. Brands, and Dr. Brands is the Jack Jack S. Blanton Jun- uh, Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. And like I said, he's back here for his third appearance on this podcast. He was here before for his last two books, uh, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom, and Our First Civil War: Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution. And his new book is The Last Campaign, Sherman, Geronimo, and the War for America, which was, which was originally published back uh, last November, actually, by Doubleday, and is the uh, book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Brands, thank you very much for uh, coming uh, coming back on the podcast, and congratulations on being the first uh, uh, th- three-peater on the podcast. Well. Thank you, Tim. I'm flattered and delighted to be back with you. Yeah, I think uh, when we, I eventually get to the point where someone's on like five times, it's going to be, you know, like on Saturday Night Live, they have like the five timers club and they get like a like a like a blazer, like in a, like at the Masters, you know, like a, the Masters right. get like the yeah. green blazer. Yeah, I think I'm going okay. to I think I'm going to institute some sort of like uh, weird blazer policy or uh, for five timers or, or or some some weird article of clothing anyway but uh, yeah exactly one of those <laughs> weird one of those green blazers is the kind of thing that nobody's going to wear out in public so right, right. unique to yours right right exactly exactly something they can just you know keep in the in the uh, closet you know gathering uh, you know moss and then they can just look at it occasionally when they uh, <laughs> you know and, and bring back fond memories of their appearances in the podcast but anyway um all right, so uh, the new book, or uh, the, the most recent book, I should say, it's not quite new anymore, um, uh, is The Last Campaign. And Now, um, you published, uh, right before I started the podcast, the year before I started the podcast, back in 2019, you published uh, Dreams of El Dorado, uh, A History of the American West. Uh, but that, so that was also a Western story, but that was really a story of the of the settling of the West. Um Yes. While this yeah. is primarily on the the military struggle uh, for the West, as you know, as referenced, the last uh, the last campaign is right. essentially this is the last campaign for the the long two century war uh, for the American continent. So, did you know when you were writing uh, Dreams of El Dorado that uh, you wanted to circle back and write something on the West from uh, uh, from this perspective, uh, this particular story? 
Well, I knew that there were a lot of stories in that larger book, Dreams of El Dorado, that I would like to focus on if I got the opportunity. And so I arranged sort of the opportunity to focus on uh, basically a 20-year period in what I call the War for America. And in fact, I I frame the War for America very broadly. Uh, The longer I do history, the more I realize that there are some stories that just go on and on and on. And the way I put it, and I'll admit I'm doing this somewhat for literary effect, but I think there's a, a basic historical meaning behind it. The War for America started almost as soon as the first arrivals got to the Americas from Asia. And this because there was always and almost incessantly competition for the best resources, for the best hunting grounds, the best fisheries, the best places to get flint for knives and that sort of thing. Humans being competitive as they are, there was this competition, the struggle, and the struggle very often gave rise to military conflict or armed conflict, hostilities. And this had been going on for thousands of years before Europeans arrived for the first time in, well, 1500 if, or 1000 if we count Lee Ferrickson and then roughly 1500. And, but it comes to – so. When I'm describing this story, I have to be sort of vague about when did this war for America begin, because it's deep in prehistory. But I am very specific when I talk about when it ended. And so this is I'm focusing on these last 20 years and it's the last campaign and things. And and I, I frame my battleground to the land that eventually became the United States of America. So at the beginning, I'm not going to talk about Indian wars in Central America and far South America or anything like that. Just what became the United States. And in the United States, this war had a specific ending on the moment in 1886 when Geronimo surrendered to U.S. Army forces for the third and final time. So this and the war for America is this contest, essentially, to determine who will give the law to this territory. It it was a struggle over natural resources, the game, the fish, the land, and everything else. And it finally comes to an end at the moment that Geronimo, the last of the holdouts among the Aboriginal peoples, says enough is enough. I give in. At that point, the the contest ends, the war ends, because at that point, the entire region of the United States is now under the authority, the constitution, the legal authority of the government of the United States. And that's the first time in all of human history, that that could be said about this territory that became the United States. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, 1887, I mean, it's not even 30 years before Arizona become, Arizona becomes a state in 1912, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. so, um, <laughs> you know, within the living memory of uh, probably I would a significant portion of the people of Arizona uh, at the time of its uh, statehood, you know. Um, so it's, it's and it's really not even that far removed from where we are uh, today. I mean, less than 100 years from the time I was born, uh, you know, it was still sort of uh, contested. There were still pieces of the United States that were uh, contested ground. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's right. uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. And and one of the main thing I try to do in this story, this history, is to take readers back to the time when people could sort of see the end coming, but they didn't know precisely when it was going to happen and when it was going to turn out. Now, if I had 
picked the story up 250 years earlier, then it would was really an open question. Sure. Who's going to win this contest? But by I really start my story in earnest in 1865 with the end of the Civil War. And I point out, by the way, that the Civil War was part of this war for America because there was this huge contest between two groups of the whites. Mm -hmm. And I for the purpose of my story, say between two of the, the white tribes who are fighting each other to see who's going to control this territory. And in fact, the, the blue coats beat the gray coats. And so that part of it, and then it allows the blue coats finally to turn their full attention to the last remaining tribes that are contesting the control of the United States, the U.S. government. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize, too, that the, you know, when people think of the Civil War, they think North and South, they think, you know, Virginia, uh, you know, Tennessee, Mississippi, uh, you know, Vicksburg. I, I don't think a lot of people realize that they were, uh, <laughs> Uh, Union soldiers and, and Confederate soldiers were fighting in Arizona territory and New Mexico territory. Uh, uh, you know, there were like actual pitched battles, uh, uh, Civil War battles going on in the West. I mean, not on obviously not right. on the scale as in as in the East, but uh, you know, there was um, a question of who was going to control that Western territory at the at the start of the Civil War. Yeah, and in fact, one of the points that I do bring out. In some detail, is that the civil war between these two groups of the Americans, of the whites, it forces the various Indian tribes to make a choice that they had always had to make any time anybody else went to war. Anytime your neighbors go to war, you have to decide which of your neighbors you're going to side with, because there aren't very many cases where you can just say, you know, we're going to sit this one out. There's always a temptation to join one side, thinking that they'll win and you'll get an advantage from that. Sometimes there's compulsion to choose this side over that side. And this indeed was the case during the American Civil War. So various Indian tribes in most, well, in many cases, they were essentially compelled to take one side or the other. And I focus on the, the Cherokees because the Cherokees initially sided with the Confederacy. In part because they wanted to, they, the Cherokees had black slaves, so they wanted to keep their slaves. In part because they thought they'd been ill-treated by the government of the United States under Andrew Jackson and his successors. Yeah, not wrong. There. And in part, <laughs> and, in, and in part because, well, they were in Confederate territory. They were surrounded by Confederates, and they yeah, didn't yeah. think they had any choice. Right, right. So they sign it. They sign a treaty with the Confederate government and say, "Okay, we're going to be your allies." But then it turns out that the Confederates couldn't or wouldn't adequately defend the Cherokees against Union troops, at which point when the Union troops come to Indian Territory, what's going to become Oklahoma, then the Cherokee leadership says, you know, uh, we really weren't that serious when we said we were siding the Confederacy. We kind of like the Union side better. But then that provoked a split among the Cherokees. So there were the Confederate Cherokees and the Union Cherokees. Anyway, one of the main themes that I bring out in the book is how complicated this all was. Mm -hmm. It was essentially never the case when an Indian tribe went to war against the military forces of the United States, that it was simply whites against Indians. It was almost always whites and some Indians against other Indians and sometimes other whites on the other side. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh the the battlegrounds and the 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 um uh the loyalties and the the changing of loyalties and it's it's a 
it's uh, it's a, almost like a patchwork quilt of <laughs> like a a military story. But um, but let's get back to uh, or I guess at the, the beginning. Uh, the subtitle is you know, Sherman Geronimo and the War for America. Um, well, you sort of mentioned why uh, Geronimo is uh, one of the main characters of the story because he's the last uh his band uh, are the last of the indians to offer uh any resistance to uh the authority of the united states government uh, in the territory of the united states uh but why did you also choose uh, william tecumseh sherman as one of the other sure. main characters sure first let me add something about why i chose geronimo so this is a this is a big sprawling story and I, as the author, as the one who's trying to convey the story, needs to find individuals who can personalize this broad story. And Geronimo is essentially only one among the Native American leaders who wrote a memoir. I mean, he didn't actually write it. He dictated it. And so if I wanted to write about the childhood of Sitting Bull or the childhood of Chief Joseph or Quanah Parker, it's really hard because there was no record. But in fact, Geronimo, after he surrendered and while he was being held as prisoner of war, he wrote his memoir. He told his life story. And the central personal question that I'd try to get into is, well, basically, why do people do what they do? But in this case, why did Geronimo hold out for so long? Why did he conduct himself the way he did? For all of the Indian leaders, and also for all the Indian individuals, the fundamental question they had to ask, they had to answer was, how long can we continue to hold out? How long can we cling to our traditional ways? Where our traditional ways are under ever more pressure. And one by one, the tribes have said, okay, we're not going to be able to hunt as we had before. We'll have to accept reservations or we'll have to accept the terms. We'll sell some of our land to the whites, whatever it might be. So this future seems to be coming inevitably, moving westward. And the various Indian leaders in particular, they have to decide, okay, do we continue to resist or do we acknowledge that the old ways are gone and we're never going to get them back? And therefore, do we make our peace with this, this new dispensation? And so this is something that they all have to decide. And, and I want to know how it seems to them. How do they make their decisions? So that's sort of more on why Geronimo. As for why William Sherman? Well, William Sherman was the commanding officer of American military forces in the West from 1865 until his retirement in the early 1880s. And during the last decade, and actually a decade and a half of that, he was also the commanding general of all of the U.S. Army. So he was the senior union officer at the end of the Civil War, except for Ulysses Grant. And when Ulysses Grant became president in 1869, then Sherman advanced to his position. So Sherman commands all of the U.S. Army forces that are engaged in this war against the Native Americans. Now, there's from from a sort of literary stand, perspective, there's an imbalance between my two individuals, because Geronimo commands only a band of Chiricahua Apaches, not even the whole Apache people, but just a group of them. Uh, while as Sherman, he runs the whole show on the other side. But actually, that imbalance 
is crucial to understanding why things turned out the way they did. Because Geronimo could command the loyalty of, well, maybe 200 people, or toward the end, it was more like two dozen people. And eventually, the numbers were simply against him. Now, if indeed there had been an Indian leader who could command the loyalty and the support of all of the Indian peoples, then the fight would have been much more even. But that never did happen. There were moments in certain areas where certain tribes did align with each other. But ancient hostilities, ancient resentments, suspicions, they were usually more important than opposition to the whites. And so when George Custer led his 7th Cavalry winding up at the Battle of Little Bighorn, he marched into battle against the Lakotas. And on his side, there were Indian historic enemies of the Lakotas. He had crows who were fighting on his side. And these crows were on his side because the Lakotas just kicked them out of the Black Hills, right? The Black Hills, exactly. And so between the two, the crows could say, well, you know, we hate the Lakotas a lot more than we hate the whites, so we'll side with the whites. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but even uh, then, I mean, at that time period, um, west of the Mississippi, there's, what, only about 400,000 or so Indians in the entire in the entire West. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, actually, yeah, in the West, there weren't even that many. Oh, okay. Um, so, so this, and the real reason was to get the Indians out of the West, where population density was very thin, and get them to go on a train to the East. First of all, the train was a big deal. So even to see that, this is what we're up against. But then to see how many people there were in the East. And in essence, how many people they were up against. And invariably, when Indian leaders went east and came back, on their arrival back in the West, they said, hey, we got to give it up. There is no way. You have no idea how many people there are that we're going to be fighting against ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, setting the stage a little bit, uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, the Indian removal policy that develops in the antebellum period and is going to uh, continue. And through this entire time, we have to remember there's almost uh, Indian policy. People can't really, or white Americans can't really agree on, you know, what Indian policy should be. Uh, There's a, almost a a dichotomy on, you know, how Easterners thought Indian policy should be handled and and compared to what how Westerners thought that it should be handled. Could you talk a little bit about um, yeah. Indian policy so for, a very, for a bit? From a, long, from a long historical perspective, when white colonists under the British, the French, the Spanish, when they encountered Indians, they wanted Indian land. I mean, people came here to take land, and the rules – of the game in those days where you grab what you can and you hold it as long as you can. And so the worst, the most violent Indian war in the history of the United States took place in New England in the 1600s. It was called King Philip's War. And in terms of the number of casualties, the deaths, the people wounded, 
as a portion of the population, that was by far the the most violent, the, the most lethal war. But I may say, but as a result of that, eventually the New England tribes, they either retreated, they were decimated by disease. In some cases, they just sort of assimilated into the population, which was actually more common than one might have thought. One of the, one of the characters, one of the main characters in my book was a man named Eli Parker, mm-hmm. who was a full Seneca Indian. But he he was educated by miss, missionaries in upstate New York. His parents had converted to Christianity, and he simply grew up as an American. And he you know, he still could speak Seneca, and he, he had cousins. But for the most part, he said, okay, he, his was a decision very early to say, the traditional ways are going, you know, it's time to make a change. And he eventually became the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So anyway, but what happened is over time, the frontier between the whites and the Indians moved west. And as it did, this region of greatest hostility between the whites and the Indians moved west as well. By the end of the Civil War, Everything east of the Mississippi River was already, I'll use the term pacified, in that, okay, there was no longer any fighting. There was no longer any contest. Now, part of this was a consequence of the longstanding policy, which was basically to get more land for the whites, sometimes by purchase, sometimes by theft, sometimes by war, sometimes by depopulation as a result of disease. This policy had been pursued by every president from George Washington and eventually up to Ulysses Grant. But the policy is most commonly associated with Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson made it formal. He persuaded Congress to pass in 1830 something called the Indian Removal Act. And it essentially gave institutional form to this policy that had been done on an ad hoc basis until then. And in fact, Jackson proposed to the Indians, we'll give you a deal. You decide to give up your territory east of the Mississippi River, and we will give you new land west of the Mississippi River. We will assist in the relocation. We'll pay for the relocation. We'll give you this land. Oh, wait, said Jackson, there is another option. If you want to stay in Georgia, if you want to stay in North Carolina, let's say speaking to the Cherokees in this case, you can do so, but you will have to live like other residents of Georgia and North Carolina. You will have to accept the authority of the state governments. So those are your options. If you're going to stay in Georgia, then you'll have to accept that you are subject to the laws of Georgia. If you don't want to accept the laws of Georgia, then you have to move out of the state of Georgia. Jackson was a state's rights guy, and the states ought to have sovereignty over their territory. We'll move you onto federal territory where there are no states. Congress passes the Indian Removal Act. Some of the Indians accept the deal. They say, okay, yeah, we realize we're not going to be able to stay here. And they take the money and they take the land and off they go. Others hung around, hoping that they could delay this. And the extreme and most tragic case was of the Cherokees who delay and delay and delay until finally in 1837, they are forced out of their homelands. The, the remaining Cherokees, the ones who haven't already gone, and they relocate in what comes to be called the Trail of Tears, in which something like 4,000 of maybe 15 or 16,000 who left died of disease, of exposure on this winter march. And 
at that time in 1830 and then by the late 1830s, there was a real split in American public opinion on what policy toward the Indians should be. Those people who lived in New England, where the policy, where the Indians basically had been dealt with decades or centuries ago, they very often criticized Jackson and the removal policy. Whereas people who live in Georgia, they were all in favor of the removal policy. And we, you'd see this historically, where when the Indian question gets settled and the, the point of contact between the whites and the Indians moves away, then people behind that line often think, oh, gosh, you know, too bad about the fate of the Indians. And this is a point that Jackson made against critics of the Indian Removal Act. It's a point that William Sherman made when he was criticized by New Englanders for fighting the Indians after the Civil War. You know, it's it's all well and good for you to say that we ought to be nicer to the Indians. But where were you or where were your grandparents when they were doing exactly what we're doing today? So it's uh, you could basically you could describe a, a gradient on a map of attitudes towards Indians and Indian policy. It was always much more, much sterner in the closer the West you got, yeah. than it was in the East. Yeah. And, right. and so you'd get cases where one of the, one of the Indian leaders that I focus on is Chief Joseph with the Nez Perce. And Chief Joseph was brilliant at using the media that existed in the day, principally newspaper reporters and the articles that they produced, to make himself sort of the romantic image of the Indian. He was America's favorite Indian. He was a good looking dude, too. Yeah, he was, he was very he photogenic. Was. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that certainly that always helps. Yeah. And this was also when photography was coming into use commonly for the first time. So, yeah, that really does matter. And and so there are all sorts of people who and I guess I should add that he also had good translators who could translate his words for the reporters in the most stirring, evocative manner. And so when he finally gives his surrender speech where he says, from where the sun now sets, I will fight no more forever. Mm. You know, oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eastern <laughs> Americans at East, they just swoon. Right. Yeah. Uh, Geronimo, he uh, going back to his uh, his autobiography, he had to dictate that in Spanish, right? Because he knew he knew Spanish and then it was translated into English. Am I correct on yeah. that? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of uh, uh, autobiographies or memoirs, uh, Sherman, you make uh, good use of Sherman's uh, memoirs as well in the book. And uh, it's not as a well-known um, volume as, as Grant's uh, memoirs. I mean, Grant's are, you know, justifiably have their reputation. Uh, but uh, Sherman's are, um, you know, it's it's still uh, it's a really, really good, <laughs> uh, fantastic memoir. And it's in its own right. And I think it's actually I'm pretty sure it's in the, the, the Library of America. I think they canonized that. In the, it is. You know, yeah. 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 So uh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And as a as an author, when I try to frame a story, I look for the voices that can help me tell the story. And one of the things that I sort of say implicitly to readers, I don't think I've ever said this explicitly in an introduction, but basically it is that if you want to understand the past, you need to forget how it turned out. You need to abandon hindsight and put yourself back in the moment 
when, for example, this is one of the reasons that I find memoirs and letters very appealing, because when Sherman wrote his orders, when he wrote his letters, he didn't know how a lot of this stuff was going to turn out. When Geronimo wrote his memoirs, he knew how it had turned out. He had surrendered by this time. But still, he's able to recapture a time when the outcome of this war for America, this last campaign, was still up for grabs. And it's really tempting when you look back on something that happened 150 years ago to imagine that somehow the outcome was preordained, that it was inevitable that things would turn out this way. And I suppose the outcome of this episode of history was more inevitable than some other stuff. But it wasn't inevitable that the Lakotas would win the Battle of Little Bighorn. It wasn't inevitable that Geronimo would break off out of the reservation three times before coming back. So, um, you know, it... I mean, I guess, as I say, it probably was inevitable just given demographics well, yeah, I would and say, epidemiology I, that the newcomers from Europe were going to win control of this territory. But, you know, it's Canada looks different than the United States does. The United States looks different than Brazil does. So it, it you know, plays out differently in different places. Before we get to the rest of this podcast... I wanted to let you know about two fantastic live podcasts Heartland produces every week. We'd love for you to join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, live for our flagship In the Tank podcast. You can watch on the Stopping Socialism TV channel on YouTube, where you can participate in the show in the chat with other fans and also ask questions that we'll address on the air and put up on the screen. And every Friday, also at 1 p.m. Eastern and noon Central time, you can go to Heartland's main YouTube channel. Just search for the Heartland Institute on YouTube for Climate Change Roundtable. Heartland's climate team of Anthony Watts, Sterling Burnett, and Linnea Lucan cover the crazy climate news of the week, debunk mainstream media myths about the so-called climate crisis, dig into energy policy, and much more. The show also often features guests that include some of the leading climate scientists and energy policy experts anywhere in the world. There is no show like it anywhere. So become regular live viewers of both of these programs if you are interested in smart, lively, fun, and interactive conversations. We hope to see you there every Thursday and Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern and noon Central at the Stopping Socialism TV channel and the Heartland Institute channel on YouTube. Oh yeah, we're also on Rumble. See you there. Yeah, um... Well, I guess we'll get to that at the end, the question of inevitability and, you know, what happened and what could have happened. Uh, we'll get to that later, uh, sort of wrap up on that. But, um, yeah. Um, anyway, so, all right, so the Civil War uh, is over, the Union's victorious, Sherman arrives and takes command in the West. And uh, what is Sherman's, Sherman's primary goal? What is the Army's primary goal in the West? What are they... Uh, what do they want to accomplish? They sort of have this dual uh, mission to, one, protect uh, whites from uh, Indian attacks and also to protect uh, the Indians themselves from uh, from white depredation. So uh, what what is Sherman's goal? What is his plan? And how is he going to go about you know trying to accomplish that? Sherman's principal goal was to end the fighting in the West. And this could have happened if the Indians would have surrendered all at once, but they didn't, they weren't going to. It could have happened sooner if 
the whites would have behaved themselves if they weren't constantly provoking Indian attack, knowing the whites did this, knowing that if a bunch of white settlers got killed, then there would be an outcry in Congress, do something about these raging Indians. And there were times when Sherman, well, first of all, Sherman understood perfectly well what the whites on the frontier were doing. He writes a letter in which he tells Grant about this one rancher that he's encountered out on the plains. And this guy had made big money during the Civil War because he was providing foodstuffs for the local army troops in the vicinity. And this guy had come to the conclusion that armed conflict is good business. So this guy was lobbying his member of Congress to, you know, let's get an Indian war because I want to keep selling stuff to the army. And if there's no war, then the soldiers go home and I lose my market. So Sherman was aware of this sort of thing. He also was aware of the fact that the whites would provoke Indians simply by shooting, killing Indians, understanding that the Indians then would respond. And then the whites would say, oh, we've been attacked. Come to our defense. At one point, fairly early on in this, Sherman, after he'd recently taken command, Sherman, Sherman goes on a tour of this region that he's responsible for. He tours all over the West. And he goes to Arizona and he looks around in Arizona and he says, in the first place, there's not much here worth having. And in the second place, there aren't very many people here. And in the third place, if we do get involved in a war here, we're going to be fighting against people like Geronimo. These people are tough. They're not going to give up very easily. So he writes a letter to Grant saying what we really ought to do is simply give Arizona back to the Indians. Just get all the whites out of there and and say, OK, this is your reservation. This is your territory. Sherman did not think that Arizona was worth fighting for. Now, it wouldn't be the last time that Sherman's advice about withdrawing was overruled. What provoked the Sioux War, as it was called, Sioux or Lakotas, was the inability of the U.S. government to keep trespassers out of the Black Hills. A treaty had been signed awarding the Black Hills to the Lakotas. Uh, the Lakotas had taken them from the Sioux in the late 1700s, but by the mid 1800s, they were the, the ones who had title to it. So this treaty was signed and the Black Hills would be given to the Lakotas and whites would stay off. This was a reservation and no whites were allowed. But there were these stories of gold in the Black Hills. And so Grant is forced to send, Grant is now president, he's forced to send an expedition, hoping to explode the rumors about gold in the Black Hills. Now, it turns out there was some gold in the Black Hills, and George Custer, who is the head of this expedition, he wanted a conflict. He wanted a war because he wanted to be president of the United States. And if you're a soldier, the way you get to be president of the United States is you win a war. So he overplayed the amount of gold there. But there are all these other people in the territory around the Black Hills, on the outside of the Black Hills, who kept um, exaggerating the stories of gold in the Black Hills. Because if you owned a store in Rapid City, South Dakota, or someplace like that, then you actually didn't care if there was any gold there as long as you could convince people that there was gold there. Because at one level um, – 
there were companies that sold shares in gold mines. And these were speculated in. And you know, if even if they were actually weren't worth anything, if somebody thought they were, you could sell it and make some money. But you could also, there were all sorts of fake mining booms where the people still had to eat, they still had to buy their picks and shovels. So a gold rush was good business, almost independent of whether there's actually gold there. But the fact of the matter is that Sherman at one point says he's uh, all this stuff is reported in the newspapers. So it's you know, they didn't have television, of course, in those days, but it was widely covered and people were aware of what was going on. And Sherman says, you know, we're, we're going to have to I'm going to have to put soldiers around the Black Hills to keep these trespassers out. And I wanted to know that we're going to defend the law. That turned out to be politically unsustainable because Congress simply would not allow American soldiers to shoot Americans who were simply trying to do the very American thing of claiming opportunity for themselves. So Sherman found himself just whipsawed between what was happening on the ground in the West, what was happening in Washington in the East, between the various, there were, there were peace parties and there were also war parties. And the last thing he wanted was for his soldiers to be sent into a position where they couldn't accomplish what they were being ordered by Congress to accomplish. And they were simply setting themselves up to get massacred as Custer's soldiers were at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah, that's actually uh, the Black Hills. That's a recurring theme of that show, Deadwood. Um, it's basically the town <laughs> at the beginning of the yeah. show. Obviously, it's on – they're all squatters on Indian land. And uh, they're uh, sort of like the one of the B-plots or C-plots of the show is, is them trying to make sure that uh, – uh, that their uh, sort of land <laughs> land ownership that they've sort of taken in this uh, area becomes uh, recognized by by the federal government, by the territorial governments, and that they don't you know get booted off uh, as squatters by uh, by the government. Yeah, so. and it's one of the reasons, one of the the principal impetuses behind territories wanting to become states. Mm -hmm. Because when you're a territory, you don't control your own fate. The federal government governs the territories and the president appoints the, the governors. But once you get enough people to have a state, and then if you can become a state, then you control your own destiny. Right. Then you can make the laws and say, okay, who gets what around here? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see. So the, the, the other, uh, the big change uh non-military uh, uh, really for the most part uh, change the thing that's going to the thing that's going to have as much effect as military policy on curtailing the traditional way of life of the of the plains indians uh, especially is this market for uh, buffalo hides that's going to open up uh, in the east and um, obviously they're going to start culling these uh, these buffalo herds that the Plains Indians depend on for their uh, for their way of life, essentially. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just going to start killing all these buffalo in, in massive numbers, and it's going to essentially force a lot of these Indians to uh, either, you know, make peace or, or just come in and in, come in to the reservation system and uh, stay there. So history is full of ironies about things that turned out very differently than people had expected. And this is especially true of the history of this part because the Buffalo trade first expanded 
and buffalo products first found their way east with the strong cooperation of the, the tribes on the plains. And the Sioux, the Lakotas, were they were one of the very rare tribes whose population was expanding during the first part of the 19th century. Nearly everybody else's population was declining. And again, this was from disease and and loss of range and all this other stuff. But the, the Sioux were expanding in part because they were building an empire in the northern plains. They were taking over land from other people, but also because they got smallpox vaccine from the traders that they did business with. And at first there was fur traders who were going after beaver, uh, but then it became buffalo hunters. And the thing that made the Sioux, the Lakotas, and other plains tribe, Comanches, Arapaho, Crow, so effective as buffalo hunters was something that they had acquired from the Europeans a century earlier, namely horses. And so when what the railroad, the iron horse, essentially finished, the real horses had started as long as the tribes of the plains hunted buffalo afoot. There's only so much that people on foot, humans on foot, can do by way of catching buffalo. Certainly, they can't keep up with them in the chase. They would have to try to trick them into stampeding over a cliff or something, what they sometimes call buffalo jumps, or they would they would get them to run into a, a narrow draw where they could get them with uh, arrows and spears. But yeah, so what, what happened by the middle of the, the 19th century is that this First of all, everybody in the East, not everybody, people who cared in the East were aware that there was this resource in the West. And if we can just figure out how to get that to the East in large quantities, then we've, we've got a business. And so when the railroad got to the West after the Civil War, sort of during and after the Civil War, then it opened up the, the huge herds of the West to sort of almost final depredations. But it's worth recalling that there were buffalo in the far east of the Mississippi River. There are buffalo in the Ohio Valley. There are buffalo all over the place. And as sort of as with everything else about this story, the people who were living in the east in the first half of the 19th century had forgotten all about that part. You know, to them, this territory had always been settled. It's always been our land. No, not just a generation or two back. The same stuff was going on here as is going on in farther west. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's literally a and, town in western New York named Buffalo. You know, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they didn't name it after the chicken wing. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So let's get to Geronimo himself again. Uh, uh, back to that part of the story, because uh, he's a very uh, fascinating individual. Uh, but for, for the most part, uh, for most of his life, um you know his beef is not with uh, with American American settlers or uh, the American government. He spends most of his life uh, uh, sort of in a, a battle of revenge against against the the Mexican government and uh, the Mexican uh, army uh, for the yeah yeah oh so go ahead just uh, yeah okay so from our perspective that seems like an important distinction. Okay, he was fighting against Mexicans rather than against Americans. From his perspective, he hardly noticed the difference because he grew up in territory 
that the the Apaches had claimed for themselves for several generations. They hadn't been there forever. They knew they hadn't been there forever. They moved in from the Northwest and they sort of fought their way down to Arizona and, and they'd been there and they had to deal with non-Apaches. And they did distinguish between non-Apache Indians and non-Apache, sorry, and non-Indian non-Apaches. But sort of, it was anybody who's not part of our people is potentially an enemy. Now, potentially at, at times an ally, but you're always sort of skeptical. They, these aren't your folks. And for the first 50 years, no, for the first 35 years of Geronimo's life, the territory that he grew up in was claimed by Mexico. More precisely at the beginning, it was claimed by Spain, but then Mexico became independent of Spain. And so now it's Mexico that he has to deal with. But then in the 1840s, the Apache territory is kind of sliced, not exactly in half, but part of it, what the Apaches considered their, their range. To, to say that they considered their land wasn't exactly right, because there were a few places where they were growing crops, but they didn't, you know, most of the land was land that they would roam across to hunt. But anyway, so all of a sudden he discovers that there is this invisible line in the ground. In some cases, it was a, a stream or something, where if you crossed it, you were on territory that's claimed by a different group of foreigners. So it's only in the 1840s that he is, he gradually comes to realize that, oh, now there's this one group of whites that they are, they stay sort of north of this line. We're talking about the southern border of Arizona and New Mexico. And then if you cross that, they were dealing with this other group of European descended folks. Uh, and so he and his fellow Apaches, who they would go back and forth all the time, simply on, well, on hunts. But also, the Apaches had learned to make a living by raiding. And what what important is they would just go steal stock. They would steal stuff from people. And I mean, typically, they'd go to Mexico and steal a bunch of stuff and come back. And the Mexicans sometimes would chase them, sometimes catch them, sometimes not. But this this raid and they stole at times, they stole women and children. So it was the way you kept up your numbers. It was, it was simply their mode of living. And what Geronimo learned was up to a point, he learned that if we're in Mexico and we're being chased by Mexican soldiers and we hurry north, then there's this line that we can cross. You hardly even know it's there, but they won't cross. And so, okay, we'll cross the border. And then if he and his fellow Apaches are raiding in Arizona, in the United States, if the Americans are following them, then they go back south across the line and the American soldiers stop. And well, this is pretty cool. So we can just use one place as a refuge against the other and vice versa. Now, eventually the, the local commanders came to an agreement uh, it wasn't something that the government to government really signed off on because Mexico wouldn't allow extradition with the United States. Yeah, Mexico so had its own beef. They sort the of United looked to the other way at this at this policy. Yeah, yeah precisely. Yeah. And so that didn't work so well. Uh, finally, but what Geronimo remembered, what he told about his motivation, hinged on a moment when there was a de facto truce between Geronimo's Apaches and the Mexican army. And so Geronimo's folks were down, they were camped outside of a town in Northern Mexico. And 
some of the, the men, the warriors, went into town and they were trading and doing what they did. And they were double-crossed while they were gone. And soldiers came in and had massacred Geronimo's whole family, his wife, his mother, his children. And Geronimo, remembering the story from a distance of 60 years, recalls that he essentially swore eternal vengeance against the Mexicans for this. And he talked quite candidly about simply wanting revenge. And as soon as he was able to regroup and his band went back north, he said, you know, I'm going back into Mexico and who's going to follow me? And I'm going to kill as many Mexicans as I can. And he does this again and again. And he's a proud warrior. And the being a warrior, fighting and killing people in war becomes a real important sense of his identity. And he's hardly you know, the first warrior type to think that nobody's going to live forever. And if you got to die, to die in battle is more glorious than to die in a sickbed. So this is this is Geronimo. Yeah. And so his um, would you say the campaign against Geronimo or for the United States, at least these uh, uh, Geronimo uh, sort of essentially keeps going, <laughs> going to the reservation and then uh, taking off and uh, fighting and then coming back and taking off and fighting, and coming back. Would you say the campaign against Geronimo is the most uh, is the toughest campaign? Uh, this, la- this this these last campaigns against Geronimo and the Apache are the toughest ones that the uh, American soldiers are going to have to fight to finally uh, you know uh, pacify. It's the, the most it, it's the most frustrating. Now, in fact, by the time Geronimo breaks out of the reservation for his last time, it's not as though the group that is behind him is somehow going to destabilize the position of American settlers in Arizona. It's not an existential threat in the way, for example, the campaign of Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull was in the north. They had a lot more warriors, but it was really a headache. And, OK, you know, we're going to impose order and peace around here. We, we got to do it. But it was an annoyance, not simply for Sherman and for the officers of the U.S. Army. It was an annoyance and it was actually a danger for some of Geronimo's own people. So I mentioned earlier that when I sit down to write a story, write a history, I'm looking for voices. Who can, who can tell me what it was like to be alive then? And one of Geronimo's much younger cousins, uh, a, a kid who grew up in Jason Betzenes was his name. And he wrote a memoir about basically traveling with Geronimo on these last breakouts. And he was too young to make a decision for himself, but his mother, who was Geronimo's own age, um, was part of Geronimo's band. And Bessonis tells about when Geronimo said, when Geronimo gets tired of living on the reservation, and he basically says to his followers, okay, we're leaving. And most of them, including Geronimo's mother, say, damn, we got to do this again, because they knew they knew you know, they're, they're not going to be able to live off the reservation forever. Basically, what's going to happen is Geronimo, who he's the warrior, he kind of likes going out on these campaigns. And yeah, maybe he'll die gloriously or something, but 
he's just he leaves the reservation because he's bored and he you know he wants to relive the old life and so it's kind of like go, napoleon they, in a way you know like he's just restless. yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, exactly. This is this is what he does. But in, in this case, and in fact, this is key to understanding why these campaigns ended the way they always did, was the women and children go with them. And so they've got to go. And, and Betson is, is, I mean, Betson is, is, he's young and he sort of comes of age as a warrior on one of these campaigns. So this is exciting for him. But for his mother, oh, God, we got to do this again. You know, and it's, we're going to get killed for no good reason. And, and if we survive, we're going to wind up exactly where we are to begin with. So why are we doing this? Well, we have to out of loyalty because Geronimo was a, uh, a well-known, he was a famous guy. By no means was he the only voice of authority among the Apaches. Now, and as, as an aside here, one of the reasons among the many that things turned out the way they did between the whites and the Indians was the Indians, as I mentioned earlier, had no centralized government. But not only did they not have any centralized government, in many of the tribes, they had nothing that would be recognized as government as, at all. So there was very little in the way of compulsion of an Indian group. So a chief was a chief by virtue of his persuasiveness. And if he could persuade people to come with him, then they went with him. But if they said no, it's not that, hey, okay, you know, we're going to lock you up. You know, we're going to shoot you for a draft evasion or something like that. That's not the way it worked. And so this was true among the Comanches. It was true among the Dakotas. It was true among everybody. So anyway, when, when Geronimo goes out the last couple of times, he's not really caught by U.S. Army soldiers. He's chased, located, and captured by other Apaches. These are Apaches who have come to the conclusion sooner than Geronimo did that the traditional ways are gone. We need to make the best deal we can with the American government. And Geronimo, you're just making things more difficult because there are critics of us. There are enemies of us in Arizona who just love the fact that you have stolen some of their cattle, that maybe you have killed some of them. Because every time you do that, they can come down and smash us even harder. They can take us off the reservation we like in the White Mountains, and they can send us off to the deserts east of here, the deserts of northern New Mexico. And you know, so you you are just making the end result of this much worse. So some of these Apaches they hired on with the U.S. government, with the, the army, and they were the scouts, and they knew all the tricks of the Apaches, and they would eventually catch up with them. And this again is a story that's told again and again, rarely. Did was it the case that U.S. Army soldiers on their horses in their blue coats would chase down and capture the Indian leaders? No, the Indian leaders were either tracked down and uh, persuaded to come in by other Indians or and what it ultimately came down to in most cases was the Indian leaders, the military leaders, the warriors, the chiefs, they realized, well, we could keep fighting, but. Our women and children are hungry and cold, and you know we can't continue this. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the U.S. Army pursued the, the strategy that it did was because of what William Sherman learned during the Civil War. And Sherman was the one who pioneered, pioneered, uh, made notorious the approach of inflicting pain on the other side, of not 
letting the war simply between be between groups of soldiers. But in Sherman's march to the sea, he devastated you know, much of Georgia and eventually South Carolina and one coast there and made the people, the civilians of the South, realize what continuing the war was going to cost. And there's one moment that I uh, spend some time on with uh, in the book, and it's really preparatory to Sherman's campaigns against the Indians, where he has just captured Atlanta and the mayor and other leaders of Atlanta say, um, and, and he's ordered the evacuation of Atlanta, get everybody, all the civilians out of the city because I can't, I can't be responsible for what might happen to them. And the leaders of Atlanta come and they say, can you please rescind the evacuation order because it's going to be a hardship on our old people, our women and children. He said, hardship, that's the point yeah. of the order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be hard. You know? And yeah. so, so what Sherman, under Sherman's leadership, Sherman himself and then other leaders like Phil Sheridan, who was one of his right-hand men uh, during the Civil War and then especially after the war, they for the first time began to conduct winter campaigns. Now, fighting in winter on the plains is tough. It's cold. You know, you run short of food and all this other stuff. But Sheridan and the others knew it was harder on the Indians than it was on the soldiers. And so time after time after time, the Indians, they could never lose a battle, but they would lose the campaign because they would simply would run out of food. And they'd say, our women are freezing, our kids are dying, we got to come onto the reservation. And that's the way it, it turned out time after time. Mm. Uh, speaking of Sheridan, real quick, um, before we wrap this up, <clears throat> excuse me. He's always sort of tarred by that uh, notorious statement, uh, uh, supposed statement that he made that the uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Is, um, is that an actual – was that statement apocryphal or is uh, – did Sheridan actually say that or something close to that in, or to that effect? He, he never said it in writing. A reporter overheard something like that. And – it's not impossible that Sharon did, Sheridan did say something like that, but it almost certainly was in the context of an attack on some of his, his troops and, or the massacre of civilians or something like that, where there was, it was alleged by various people then and people historically that the United States government was embarked on a campaign of extermination of the Indians. And that's simply false. There never was a time when the government of the United States said we're going to kill all the Indians. By no means. There were times when Sherman, in exasperation, said, oh, those Lakotas that massacred Colonel Fetterman's uh, column, you know, if they don't give in, well, we'll fight them to the last man. Um, but a policy of killing everybody. No, in fact, Sherman himself really took umbrage when Wendell Phillips, who had been an abolitionist yeah. and now was a spokesman for the Indians, made that charge. And he said, no, this is not it at all. And, and Sherman then did point out something that I alluded to earlier. You know, it's easy for Phillips to say this from the comfort of New England, but where are the Indians of New England today? What do you think happened to them? Right. Right. So, uh, all right, we've gone, I've kept you about as long as I normally keep you, so I guess I'll try to wrap this up so um but geronimo just real quick back to geronimo what becomes of him after his final uh his final surrender in 1887 because uh, he still lives he lives another 20 years after uh he lives till 1909 i believe um so he lives yeah. another 22 years um you know 
pacified, <laughs> essentially. So, yeah. what, what what becomes of Geronimo in the the you know the last uh, the last generation of his life, really? So he surrendered a place called Skeleton Canyon. It was basically on the border between Mexico and the United States in southern Arizona, and Geronimo said Geronimo remembered that the U.S. officer to whom he surrendered, Nelson Miles, said that he would not be taken as a prisoner, that he would be simply sent to the reservation. Nelson Miles remembered something different. He said, no, no, I never said that. I never said that you weren't going to be taken prisoner. I never I never said that you're not going to be taken away. So he was taken as a prisoner of war and he was shipped to Florida and he was shipped to Florida because every time he had been simply put on a reservation in Arizona, he had broken away. So they figured he's going to have a hard time getting out of Florida. Um, and also, um, Miles and the American government said this is partly for Geronimo's protection because Geronimo was responsible for the deaths of the loved ones and friends of many people living in Arizona. And they were out to get him. And so there was something to that argument. For the most part, they wanted to get him out of out of the territory. Eventually, he was allowed to go west to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. It was when he was at Fort Sill that he dictated his memoir. And and he also converted to Christianity. And there's a chapter in the memoir about how he concluded that the Christian God was the greater God. And this was the one that he, you know. Realize this is the one he should be praying to. Now, he converted to Christianity, but not just any branch of Christianity. He became a member of the Dutch Reformed Church. <laughs> Dutch Reformed Church? How many Dutch Reformed <laughs> ministers are there in Oklahoma? Right. Well, there weren't any in Oklahoma, but there was a Dutch Reformed congregant in the White House. This was Theodore Roosevelt. And essentially what Geronimo was doing was lobbying for the right to return to Arizona. And he had a meeting with Roosevelt and he explained that he wanted to go back to Arizona before he died. And Roosevelt sort of sympathized. He said, I understand that. But Roosevelt says, sorry, there there's just too many people back in Arizona who have memories that, of things they simply can't forget. I can't I couldn't guarantee your safety there. So you're going to have to stay there. So he, he wound up dying at Fort Sill. Yeah, and he became uh, he was something of a uh, sort of a national celebrity or already a legend by the time he he had passed away yeah so there is this interesting that happens it's quite understandable that geronimo becomes sort of this the hero of the symbol of indian resistance yeah it becomes a romantic okay, the figure, last yeah. last told that yeah mm-hmm. and it's it's not a it's not a small thing that the spanish version of his neighbor which he is known geronimo kind of rolls off the tongue and so when paratroopers are jumping out of planes, they yell, Geronimo! And, and there's a, a level of sort of myth, myth that floats in over all of this stuff. And it never would have persuaded people who lost a husband or a child or even a herd of horses to Geronimo and his raiders. But the farther away you get from it, there is this idea, and it's, it's quite understandable and not without justice, that, gee, you know, the Indians really got a bad deal from the government of the United States. And, you know, in a global sense, that's true. But it's it's hard to the point of impossible for me anyway to figure out how it how, how it could have turned out materially different. 
Right. Yeah, that's because what happened is they were essentially the victim of demographics. The population of the Europeans and their descendants in America was growing rapidly and epidemiology. And at the same time that the population of the native peoples was shrinking dramatically. And when, as I mentioned earlier, when leaders from tribes in the West would travel east and they would see the millions of people living in the Ohio Valley, living on the eastern seaboard, they would realize, man, there's no way we can do this. We're going to have to accept that the old ways have gone. We're going to have to come up with something new. You know, it's if one imagines that things could have been different. Well, in a fundamental sense, Indians were a victim of modernization. You know, it's, it's really hard to imagine um, Indians living in their traditional manner on the Western Plains, hunting buffalo after industrialization, again, after the railroad, after the growth in population. So, and, you know, nowhere on earth except in pockets of Amazonia are there people still living in their pre-industrial style. And one of the things that Andrew Jackson said in uh, an address in which he was defending the Indian Removal Act is, you know, our people, my people, my parents, my grandparents, they have dealt with wrenching changes, too. That's just the nature of the world. Right. Things change. Nothing stays the same. So, yeah, I mean, like like you said, it's just I don't know. I mean. It's sad in a way, but and I'm I'm sure that we can point to many different things in in this history of the American Indian and <laughs> the government of the United States or the or the people you know the, or the white uh, European colonists settlers where things could have been handled better, but it just seems like the inevitable like the ending the the dispossession of the Indians of their lands and their traditional way of life was just inevitable because it was a civilizational clash and they right. were they were not uh, it was a pre-modern people uh, uh, in some ways almost still a stone age people I mean I don't, I don't say that derogatorily yeah. I mean it was just yeah, I mean, it's true right. I mean they didn't have uh, they didn't have metal tools I mean they had for the most part no written language and they didn't have the wheel uh, you know uh, those sort of things that um, they were just uh, um, they were just not prepared to wage a battle against a a modern uh, civilization, and um, so you can only really see it that you know ending one way, and I'm uh, but you know the, I'm trying to figure out is there any way how the West was settled where uh, uh, where it, it could have been less, uh, and maybe it only seems, I mean, it, granted it's still terrible, but I mean, maybe it only seems so terrible because it's just something that happened here and something that happened newer. I mean, like no one remembers, uh, <laughs> you know, Europeans have no concept of like, Oh, when the Visigoths came and, you know, uh, right. took over right. this or, you know, when the Romans came or, or, you know, when, or when the Moors, you know, swept up from, from North Africa, you know what I mean? And, and dispossessed us right. or oh, anything yeah. like that. So, I mean, it's just, so there's things that happens. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, uh, but it's not unique. 
uh, it's not unique to the American Indian and it's not unique uh, on the one side and it's not unique to the white the actions of the whites are not unique to them uh, throughout history, you know? Right. Yeah. And I'll point something else out. And that is the Indians didn't disappear. Right. Yeah. There are, there are 10 times as many Cherokees alive today as there were at the time of the trail of tears. Mm -hmm. So they have thrived and the Navajos in the Southwest, they're probably the people that lives in a manner closest to what they were, how the way they were living when the Spanish arrived and in the same territory. So there are mm -hmm. places and, you know, I should say the reason they can do it there is that the whites didn't find anything there that they really wanted. Right. So, I mean, that's yeah. the way it is. But you, you made a very good point. And when I talked about the war for America, it, this is this is the war for the world, because yeah. people have if you had the power, then you took what you could. Right. And. You know, the rule of thumb is you take what you can and you hold it till you can't. Right. And, it, yeah, and yeah. you can't mean somebody else is going to take it away from you. Right. Like I said, it's not like the, now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that does change somewhat with industrialization when economies are not so dependent on territory for their sustenance. But you know, we got a war going on in Ukraine and, you know, this is who's going to control Ukraine. And we're in the 21st century. So what was happening in the 19th century, this is hardly unique. Yeah. Yeah. So and like you mentioned before, it's not like the pre-Columbian uh, North America was just this, you know, Xanadu land of peace and harmony. Um, you know, oh, <laughs> the, exactly. the, 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 Indian, yeah. the Indians are fighting each other constantly. Uh, like you mentioned, which, uh, is, which the, is why they yeah. allied with the Europeans sure. and the Americans when they arrived. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, the the Sioux, I mean, in the Black Hills, they literally like just kicked the crow off of the Black Hills. And then when the whites come to the Black Hills, the Indian, the, the Lakotas are like, hey, this is our, you know, ancestral holy ground. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like you got here about five <laughs> minutes before we did. You know, I can't. Right. Uh, but um uh, I had another point too, but um, but anyway, and say hypothetically, do you think if um, maybe early, maybe um, in the antebellum period, maybe even earlier after the foundation of the United States and the West, do you think if the Indians as a whole, you know, just said like come together and said like, hey, uh, we're all just going to give up our traditional way of life. And we're going to uh, assimilate and, you know, we want to, you know, cultivate the land or, or, you know, become merchants or uh, tradesmen or whatever, what have you. But we want to integrate ourselves into white society as a whole. Do you think white America of that time would have allowed that to, to happen? It was just like, you know, if no struggle, just, hey, we want in. Um, but we want well, to keep I'll like our plots. You I, know? <laughs> you know I, I mean? mentioned Eli Parker. Yeah. You know, Eli Parker was a full-blooded Seneca Indian and he rose to the highest level of the U S government and nobody prevented him from doing it. Now, the thing is that the Indians who made that choice, they essentially became invisible in history because they're just, then they're just folks yeah. living in New York. So they sort of disappear. It's sort of like um, among black people who have interracial kids and sometimes the interracial kids, they decide to pass as white. So they sort of disappear and they're white. 
And what happens to them? We don't know. Yeah. I mean, There's one thing that I, I did make a point of looking this up. You know, I've, I cast this as the, the war for America. But in all of the Indian wars in the territory that became the United States, the total number of Indians killed in battle was far less than the number of soldiers killed in a single campaign in the Civil War. So it's, it was something like 15,000 Indians died in battle over 400 years. So really what happened is and the, the largest cause of the diminution of Indian populations was disease. And this was utterly beyond anybody's control as well as anybody's understanding when it began. And so once the first European got close to the coast of North America, you know, and once the microbes crossed over, then that by itself basically meant that 80% of the population of the indigenous population in the new world was going to die, was going to disappear. And that's what happened. And so when, by the time the English got to New England, they looked down and said, why man, where'd everybody go? Why is it so empty? And they, there were enough sort of, um, crumbling Indian villages to realize there used to be people here. Now, Puritans being Puritans and people being people in those days, they attribute it to God's will. It was God's will that made this happen. And they died of a disease, but disease was God's will. So the only way the outcome sort of could have been materially different is if there could have been a huge wall built uh, right down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and another one on the Pacific side and just keep Eurasians out. And then you know, conceivably, things might have been different, but you know, that wasn't in the cards. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we've gone long. I've got you long. You know, I got to get to the springs. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so um, get out of that heat. But uh, yeah. So last question again, as uh, always, you know, the exit question. I think we might have, uh, we probably touched on it a little bit, uh, you know, in our last little bit of discussion, but. Um, you know, uh, what's you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or you know, what's the one the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? The people who were engaged in what I call the War for America in this last campaign were individuals, and they made their decisions. What am I going to do with the alternatives in front of me? In the case of Sherman, how do I fight this war? Do I if I don't like the war, I can always retire, but I'm a soldier and this is what I do. If you're Geronimo, do I continue to resist? If you're Geronimo's young cousin, do I follow my older cousin, you know, the, the noted war chief? You know, what do I do here? And it's, it's very easy to look on all of this stuff and just think in broad brush terms. But everybody wakes up every morning and says, OK, what am I going to do? What do I do? with the choices I have in front of me. All of us at some time or other have to make a choice. If, when something's not working, how long do I persist? How long would I keep beating my head against this wall before I realize, sorry, I gotta make a change. And that's the decision that ultimately all of the Indian peoples had to make. And you know, it took some people a short amount of time to make it, took others a longer time, it took Geronimo the longest of all. And that's just, and when you don't know how it's gonna turn out, then the question is even harder. So what I want my readers to do is to is to be transported back into a time when you didn't know quite how this was going to turn out. And you're alongside these different people, Geronimo and various other Indian leaders, making this decision. What do we do today? 
how do I carry out my responsibility to myself, to my, for the women and children that I'm responsible for? What are we going to do about this? All right. Great. Very well put. Okay. Well, uh, before we go, anything else uh, you want to plug coming? I know you have a, a new book uh, coming out. I saw it on Amazon. Uh, the coming out in November, I guess the the founding partisans, uh, Hamilton, Madison, yes. Jefferson, Adams, and the brawling birth of American politics. And you want to give us a little uh, uh, preview of that one, or, uh, or yeah. yeah. So where did political parties come from? They seem to be the bane of our existence in the 2020s. Well, they emerged at the very from the very beginning. And so there's something in the American character. There's something in the American political system that seems to produce political parties. So. All it's right. the the origin of the party system. Very very cool. I'm looking forward to that one, and uh, you know, hopefully have you back on in a few months for that, uh, so you can be the first uh, the first four timer. Uh, first okay. four timer. All right. But, yeah, but anyway, all right. So uh, again, the book is or the book we've been talking about the uh, the newest book is the last campaign Sherman Geronimo and the War for America. The author uh, Dr. H. W. Brands, and uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, Dr. Brands is a uh, masterful storyteller um there's a reason uh, he's been on this podcast uh three times at this point and there's a reason i have a uh, entire uh, shelf <laughs> shelf full of his books uh, here in my uh, office uh and that's because um all of his all of his works all of his books are uh, first rate uh, uh narrative histories uh and uh they're all just fantastically fantastically done and the last campaign is no different so i highly highly recommend everybody out there uh, getting a hold of a copy of it um and uh you, you won't you, you won't regret it it's a fantastic book and so make sure you do get that and then again uh dr brands thank you again uh for coming back on and talking about the book with me and uh, uh you know as always i appreciate it and so thank you very much glad to do it tim thanks for having me on oh uh, no problem and again, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have uh, any uh, questions or comments uh, about the podcast or if you have any uh, books you'd like to see uh, covered on the podcast, or, you know, feel free to reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to uh, heartland.org itself. And uh, our Twitter account is... Um, is is still available uh, for you guys to uh, check out that as well. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments, feel free to give us a follow. All that, send us a DM. All that stuff. So our Twitter account handle is at uh, illbooks at i l l books. So again, yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So we'll uh, see everybody next time. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye bye. The moon shone down with an eerie light and cast its beam on the lonely night. Shadows danced, a fluttering breeze stirred dead branches in the trees. The land lay waste, a chill in the air was proof that disaster had struck there. The moaning wind and the glistening snow seemed to whisper, Geronimo. Geronimo. A train of settlers left one day from somewhere way back east, they say, a song in their hearts and hopes unfurled to build a life in the western world. Husbands, wives, kids by the score, smiling faces, dreams galore, future bright, but soon they'd know the ominous name, Geronimo.
Storm clouds gathered a few weeks out, and then came a spell of want and drought. Sick with fear, they lost their way. On their knees, they began to pray. And prayers were answered. A guiding hand showed the way to the promised land. The wind moaned to let them know of the man who was known as Geronimo. Geronimo! curl of smoke on a distant hill, a sign of peril ignored until they suddenly saw with gasping breath their doom was sealed by the hand of death, for there on a stallion sat their fate, filled with a deadly savage hate, decked in war paint all aglow, the warrior chief, Geronimo. The settlers' wagons were wrecked and burnt, men were killed wherever they turned. Nary a woman or child was spared, those alive stood shocked and scared. The nation mourned this carnage act, could hardly believe the terrible fact that tomahawk swinging arrow and bow was the work of a man called Geronimo. He appeared one day at the stockade door, finally brought before the law to stand his trial. The verdict he got, come the sunrise, he'd be shot. The same moon shines on the lonely night, and now it shines with a peaceful light. But should you listen to the falling snow, you can hear it murmur, Geronimo. Geronimo! 